Some of you today walked in this morning and you just really need to, to hear that, what we have just sung. He's not going to forsake us. He's not going to leave us. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I just want to, right now, I want to take time. Miss Linda here. Uh, uh, she got a little bit of bad news this week. Uh, some health issues. But we want to take time to pray over her right now. And so if I just take hand, and do you mind if I share on that? And she got diagnosed with ALS this week. And so we just want to take time to pray for her and to, to comfort her right now. And I know that there's others in this body who are hurting. And the number one thing that we want to do as a church is obviously glorify God through the preaching of His Word. But it's also encouraging one another through the Gospel. Day in and day out. So, Father, we thank You that You do not leave us nor forsake us. And I pray right now that for Miss Linda, You will just comfort her in a way that only You can, Lord. Though this trial, through this suffering, Lord, You are constant. And you promise to use all things for the good of those who love you or are called according to your purpose. But Lord, we ask that you will heal her. We ask that you will sustain her and give her a confidence and a hope that is rooted in your word. Lord, you are the great physician. And we are mightily what only you can do. And we're asking you to do it all for your glory. In this hour, in this time, Lord, help every one of us to, to turn our attention upon you. To trust you for who you are. You are good. And you are righteous. And your plans, though we cannot comprehend them, and we hate what the fall has done to this world, you hate it so much more. And Lord, we are longing for a day when Christ will return and he will make all things new. Well, there will be no more sickness and there will be no more disease. There will be no more death. And Christ will reign and we will be co-heirs with Christ reigning for all of eternity. And until that day comes, we press on. Lord, take this time now, the preaching of your word, and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As you make your way back to your seats,
I, uh, I was installed as your pastor one year ago today. And I have never loved a congregation more than I love this one. To see a congregation rally around one another, to pray for one another, encourage one another. We say thank you. We say thank you for the Christ-like example that you are to me and to my family to this community and, and the world around us. I remember when uh, we were in the process of talking about coming on, on, on board here and just talking with the elders and even some of you all through Skype calls and different things and one of the, the phrases was put out, uh, said, you know, we're not the prettiest thing on paper. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that, that's true of Harvest Point. We're not the prettiest thing on paper but it is the most beautiful congregation that I've ever been a part of. You all have become our family, and we thank you. And I'm just gonna just stop with thank you because if I continue any further, I'm gonna start crying, and everybody else is already kind of doing that anyway. So we love you. And that's what I love about Harvest Point. We're a kaleidoscope of people brought together from all different backgrounds, united together in Christ. It's the gospel on display. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Let's get to where we feel most comfortable, where I feel most comfortable. Let's get into the Word together, all right? Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. And for those of you who got different faces, new faces in here today, what we do is we just pick a book of the Bible and we're walking through it. Whatever comes next, we tackle. So this is what comes next. They went from, verse 30, they went from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. They did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum and and when he was in the house, he asked him, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, 
cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, I'm just so thankful that as we're walking through the gospel of Mark, we've come to such an easy passage such as this, one that's just going to encourage us and strengthen us uh, today. And it will do that, but it's obviously not an easy passage. Now, if you're following along in your Bibles, you're going to notice, hopefully you notice, you're following along on the screen, that verses 44 and 46 are missing from the ESV. Now, the question we should be asking is, why are they missing? And the reason is because they're not consistently found in the earliest manuscripts. All right? So what we want to do, what the ESV is based upon, the English Standard Version, is based on trying to get to close to the original manuscripts as possible. So we want the earliest manuscripts to be that of which we're basing the text on. Now, if your Bible, your translation has the, the, those in there, those verses, they're likely in brackets, maybe in bold. There's nothing wrong with them being there. It's providing further evidence of the teaching behind the reality of hell. They're, they're exactly what is seen in verse 48. Now, we'll come that to, to that in a moment. But this is another reason um, I would encourage you, if you are not already, to, to bring your Bibles, have a hard copy right there in front of you, and, and follow along. I know that some, some of you want to use your, your phones, your uh, iPads. That's fine. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But if you are like me, there can be the distraction, the temptation there to, to be able to like, oh, text, text message. Oh, there's a notification that comes through. And I can go like ADD moment and I can be completely distracted from what I'm focused on. And there's just something about being able to walk through the argument, have the Bible in front of us, see what's there. Don't trust what's on a screen. Screens can make mistakes. The people who put them on there, such as myself, we can make mistakes. And so we want to make sure that what is, we're following along with the word. If you do not have a Bible, please talk to me after the service and we'll make sure that changes, okay? We will make sure that you, you get a Bible of your own. But picking up in the scene at hand, Jesus and his 12 disciples are now making their way south towards Jerusalem, all right? Essentially, the road to Calvary has begun here, and Jesus is attempting to prepare the disciples for what's to come. And now, this is for the second time he's telling them about his coming death and resurrection, And just like with the first time, he's just laying it out there as plain as possible that he's going to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. And he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And guess what? They still don't get it. (laughs) And this time, they're afraid to even ask a question why. You ever been there? where someone has explained something to you as like plainly as possible and you're still looking at them like, yeah, I still don't get it. You ever been there? Uh, Yeah, it's like you're looking at them like a deer in the headlights moment, but now you're to the point where they've explained it so many times, you're like, I'm not even going to ask. I'm just going to pretend like I get it. That's kind of where the disciples are at at this moment. They're just, they have no idea what he's talking about, but now they've made their way. They've come to Capernaum. 
home of Peter and Andrew, kind of the home base of the Galilean ministry. Again, they're making their way south. And Jesus asks them, hey, what have you all been talking about on the way? What have you been discussing? Because he knows they've been talking. And, and how do they respond? Silence. Crickets. Uh, they're quiet. They're not saying anything. Why? They're kind of embarrassed because they've been arguing about who is the greatest. Who's the greatest in the, in, of the 12 disciples? Who's going to be the greatest in, in the kingdom? Which is an indicator that they yet, don't yet understand what the kingdom of God is really about. It's another indicator that they don't yet understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. It's another indicator that they don't yet understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. And sadly, we see the same thing is true with many professing Christians today. They don't yet understand what it means to be a follower of Christ according to the text. The, these 12 disciples are like, we're in the inner circle, we're one of the 12 you can see how a sense of pride would develop, can't, can't you? And as they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in, in the kingdom, who's going to get the best position, who, who in the new administration is going to get the best cabinet positions, I'm going to be the vice president, I'm going to be the secretary of state. No, 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 I'm going to be, I'm going to have those positions. I'm the greatest of them all. We see this, it's the discipleship here that, that Jesus is saying, he goes, okay, you're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And so Jesus seizes the opportunity to tell them and really to tell us to say, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. To be a follower of Christ, the road of discipleship is a road that is paved with suffering, rejection, and even death. Do you remember chapter 8, verse 34? Where Jesus tells them, and they've been, he'd been told them plainly of this is what's going to happen to him. Peter's like, uh-uh, that's not going to happen to you. But then he says, okay, crowd, gather in. Everybody come, come close. And he says, if anyone, anyone, disciples, crowd, any of us in this room, if anyone would follow me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And what today's text is doing is it's just laying forth, this is what it means to follow Christ is explaining it further. Really, from chapter 8 to chapter 10, it's one giant discipleship discourse, if you will, of saying, if you want to be a follower of Christ, this is what it looks like. Chapter 8 to chapter 10. So three things that we're going to look at from this text today. They're saying, okay, this is what it looks like to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, and to follow after Jesus. And as we'll see, it's countercultural to everything we see in our society today. Number one, Christians are to be servants of all. So Jesus, what he does is he calls the disciples to himself. He has them all sit down before him, and he says, he knows what they've been talking about. He says, okay, if you desire to be the greatest, if you desire to be first, you're going to actually have to become last. You're going to have to become a servant of all. It's countercultural, isn't it? It's countercultural then. It's countercultural today. Because what do we want? We live in a culture where it's the, strong, the survival of the fittest, right? The strongest advance. Winner takes all. But Jesus says, not in the kingdom of God. Not in the kingdom. Jesus is saying, hey, deny yourself, die to self, follow me, follow my example. Being great in the kingdom of God is not about us. 
And that's hard, isn't it? Because we like when things are all about us. We don't like to admit that, but we like when things are all about us. We want what we want, what we want, and we want what we want right now, right? When things go off of our schedule and off of our way, we say, oh, we don't like that. But Jesus is saying, it's not about us. It's not about us being sovereign. It's about us being servants. Imagine a church where this was the case. Just picture with me, if you will, a church where everyone, all, everybody would say, we're all going to be last of all. We're all going to be servants of all. (laughs) You have a situation where I'll clean the toilets. No, 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 no. I'm going to, I will clean the toilets. No, 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 no. Everybody's racing to be the toilet cleaner, right? (laughs) We don't live in a culture like that, do we? It's countercultural here. Be competitive to be last. I guess there could be some pride in that as well. Like, I'm going to be the best last person possible. I mean, but there's, we see this, and Jesus is teaching the disciples and us that being a follower of Christ is about dying to self. <laughs> it's not about pride. It's about what? Humility. Oh, we have so much trouble with that. <laughs> Fingers pointed this direction. Trouble with humility. It's about losing our lives for Christ, picking up our cross and following him. And this hasn't sunk in yet for the disciples. And it hasn't sunk in yet for the better part of American Christianity. So what does Jesus do here? He has an object lesson. And he brings a child over to him in the midst of them, brings him into his lap. Now, why a child? Because we have to understand children in the ancient times were considered much differently, viewed much differently than we do today. Today, we kind of contend towards the area of child worship. Not so much in the ancient times. In the ancient times, they were seen as weak, dependent, by and large, ignored by society completely. I mean, a rabbi would refuse to even teach the Bible to anyone under the age of 12. It seemed as pointless. Why would you teach the Bible to someone under the age of 12? But what does Jesus do? He takes this lowly, marginalized child, lowly member of ancient society, doesn't have a job, doesn't pay taxes, They're completely dependent upon mommy and daddy and society for absolutely everything. Amen, right? He takes them and into his arms and he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me or only me, but him who sent me. Say what? What did he just say here? Whoever receives the lowly the outcast, the child, the least of these, the marginalized, receives not only Jesus, but God the Father as well. You want to be great? You want to be first? You imitate Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Jesus, the Son of God, became last. He became last, was spit upon, Mocked, beaten, rejected, and killed on a criminal's tree. Humility all over being displayed here. In love, he willfully submitted his life as a suffering servant to atone for his sheep. 
And the call to follow him is a call to emulate his humility, to deny ourselves, pick up his cross, our cross, and follow him. Just imagine if that were said of all of us. Imagine a culture where that's taking place. Imagine the effect that would have on our surrounding community. Imagine that effect that would have on just those of us in this room. Just the encouragement and the joy that is seen in the time of sorrow, of gathering around to pray. Imagine if that is multiple times over, seen day in and day out, where we're dying to self and we're becoming last to put others before ourselves. It radically transforms not only the culture of a church, but throughout the community. That's countercultural. We can't do that in our own power. We try, it's just legalism. We must be dependent upon the power of the Spirit working in our lives. We must be dependent upon the Spirit as God works in our lives. We cannot do this in our own power. Two, Christians recognize the kingdom of God is bigger than us. When I say us, I mean us individually, us as local churches. It's bigger than Harvest Point. It's bigger than Jeremy. It's bigger than us. In verse 38, John looks, he's, what he's doing here is he's looking for a pat on the back. He's looking for a that a boy. Like, way to go, John. Good job, John. That's what he's wanting Jesus to do. Because he comes to Jesus, he says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. John's looking for the pat, pat on the back, the that a boy. Like, good job, John. Great job trying to stop him from doing what he's doing. Why is John doing this? He thinks he's doing a good thing. He thinks he's doing the right thing, but he's actually showing how prideful he and the other disciples have become. He's saying they're not one of us. He's not one of us, one of the 12, one of this exclusive group. But what is that man doing? He's he's casting out demons in Jesus' name. They're, 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 they're frustrated, they're prideful because they're actually seeing this man, this nobody, doing something that they were unable to do with the boy who was possessed by a demon. We looked at that just last week. They're, they're, they're frustrated, they're prideful. Now they've come to Jesus and say, we try to stop him. They're looking for the that boy, the good job. But what does Jesus say? He says, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. Jesus is telling him, hey, don't stop him. This guy's a believer. He's doing this in, in my name. He's on our team here. He's doing what the disciples should be doing. This no-named nobody is exalting somebody, capital S. He's exalting Jesus, Right? But the nobody, these, these, these somebodies, these 12, these disciples, what are they doing? They're worried about the nobody. The nobody who's spending his time exalting Jesus. <laughs> They're worried. They've got it all wrong. Who's on the road to greatness here? Not the disciples. They've got it all. They don't understand. And I think one thing that is really hard for us as Christians myself chiefly included here at time, is celebrating the victories of other Christians, of other local churches. Why? Because we're so competitive. 
We don't necessarily want to admit it, but we're competitive. It's, it's wild lists like the 100 fastest growing churches or the 100 largest churches in America. That's why lists like that exist. There's an unspoken competition that exists because of our pride. We forget to realize that we're on the same team. We have questions and people will ask, well, you know, how many are going to your church? How many baptisms have you had? How many of this and how many of that? And, and there's a part of us, it's like if we're not answering in a one-upmanship that we're, or right on par, that we kind of feel like, oh, that's pride. It's something we need to confess and repent of. As a church, as Harvest Point, we've been talking about this week in and week out. We are praying for God to transform lives throughout this community. We want to see people reach for Christ. Amen? We want to see people reach for Christ. But what if our prayers come to fruition and the harvest is seen through a church down the street? What if it's in a church that's not yet even here, but is planted and is started in the next few years? How will we respond? Will we celebrate our prayers are being answered? The community is being reached. God is being glorified. Or will we have kind of the proverbial golf clap? You know what I'm talking about? Like you got two, two players like fighting it out for the U.S. Open. They're coming down towards the end. And you got the guy who's getting ready to sink the putt. And if, the, if he misses it, the other guy wins. <laughs> and then the guy over, he's watching to the side. And he's got the nice smile on his face. And in, in, inside, all he's saying is, miss it, miss it, miss it, miss it, miss it, miss it. That's all I want, miss it. <laughs> and then the guy sinks the putt. And the guy's like, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, Congratulations. See, what the disciples fail to recognize, what we often fail to recognize is God is bigger than our local church. God's kingdom is bigger than our local church. It's bigger than us individually. It's not an individual sport. This is a team game. And if there are Christians in churches believing, preaching, and teaching the same gospel, that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, they're us. They're us. We're on the same team. We're together for the gospel, if you will. Yes, we may have some differences. Yes, we may not agree on everything, but our allegiance to Christ unites us in the same mission. Now, that does not mean that we support or encourage teaching that can lead people astray. Let's make that very clear. We do not support or encourage teaching that can lead people astray. We see way too much of that throughout our society. There is a difference between preaching a different gospel and preaching the gospel differently. We do not support preaching a different gospel for there is no other gospel that has the power to save. Only Christ leads us into number three. We can go back and we can talk about that for a very long time, but we will not. I will spare you. We'll go to number three. Christians don't cause other Christians to stumble. Christians don't cause other Christians to stumble. Again, I told the first service, I'll say in this one, it's like I, I come back and I hear that television ad of friends don't let friends drive drunk. It just, it just keeps popping in my head as I listen to this, read this. Christians don't let other Christians stumble. Christians don't let, cause other Christians to sin. 
Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, to, to stumble, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Well, that's soft language right there, right? Little ones here. What's he referring to? Little kids, little children? Actually, young believers. This isn't really focused on age here, but those who are young in, in the faith. And he's saying, it'd be better for you if your feet were encased in cement and you were thrown in the ocean to drown than it would be if, if you were to cause one of these little ones to stumble, one of these young believers to stumble. That's pretty strong language, right? And that strong language is intended to really do two things for us. It's intended to encourage us and to warn us. And, and you're sitting there like, how in the world is that intended to encourage me? <laughs> like, how is this an encouragement? You think about it. That Christ cares enough for the little ones that he's going to issue a warning to protect them. Don't cause my little ones to stumble. I always think back to the, the, the children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to what? Him belong. They are, and he is, and he's loving. He cares for the little ones. He's protecting his sheep. At the same time, he's issuing a warning. He's issuing a warning saying, we as Christians must not do anything that is going to cause another Christian, specifically a young Christian, to enter into sin. As such, we must fight to rid ourselves of sin. Sin that will harm us and sin, sin that would cause a fellow believer, a young believer to fall into sin. We must rid ourselves of it. Daniel Aiken, the, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological uh, Seminary, or Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, he says, if we do not rid ourselves of the sin that took both Satan and Adam down, we will be a stumbling block to others and God will hold us accountable. Church, we mustn't read these verses and fail to see how serious Jesus takes sin. He takes it extremely serious. He's saying if, if your hand causes you to sin, what's he say? Cut it off. <laughs> if your foot causes you to sin, what? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, what? Tear it out. Pluck it out. It's disgusting. <laughs> it's what he's calling us to do here. Why? Because it would be better for us to enter into heaven blind and crippled than it would be to go into hell. I can see 2020. I can walk plainly. I can wave my hands in the air, but I'm in hell. And so he says it would be better. Now, some want to immediately just dismiss this as a hyperbole. Jesus doesn't really want you to cut off or pluck out or tear out. And no, Jesus isn't calling us to mutilate ourselves. We're not going to have like an altar call where we're going to have like tear out your eye over here and pluck out your hand or cut off your hands over here. We're not going to do that. That's, again, that's disgusting. That's sick. But also, Jesus isn't using this language to make a soft point. He's clearly telling us something pretty severe needs to take place to keep ourselves from falling into sin, keeping others from falling into sin. So do you have a problem with theft? Have a problem with your hands causing you to sin, whatever that may be, harming others, whatever? remove, cut off, take away whatever that is that is causing that to happen, remove it from your life. 
You're having a problem with going to places that you shouldn't go, places that are naturally gonna lead you to sin, you know that they will. Cut off your feet, whatever means, don't go there. Take it away, set up barriers, set up blockades. Don't let yourself go to those locations if it's gonna cause you to enter into sin. It's gonna cause someone else to enter into sin. You have a problem with pornography, with lust, with covetedness, seeing things that are making you sin, pluck it out, toss it out, tear it out, block whatever you have to block to get rid of those temptations that were gonna lead you into sin. He's saying do whatever you have to to keep yourself from sinning and causing fellow young believers to fall into sin. Church, we will either be killing our sin or our sin will be killing us. It's that serious. And the consequences are are crystal clear. As Jesus is telling us, the alternative to not dealing with sin is hell. The alternative is hell. And regardless of what our watered-down culture believes, hell is a real place. Where it says the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a place of eternal punishment. There is no end to it. There is not a, this is not a place separated from God. It is a place where unbelievers receive the eternal wrath of God for their sin forever. And it's impossible for us to overstate the terrors of hell. We cannot. We cannot surpass the horrid images that Jesus uses to describe it. Jesus speaks of it more than anyone else in the Bible. Fellow Christian, when we think of hell, we are meant to to tremble in fear. That's why Jesus uses the graphic language that he does. Cut off, pluck out. The consequences are far too great not to. We can't play this game of how close to the fire can I get without getting burned. We see that way too often in our culture and that's how marriages are destroyed. That's how jobs are lost. Families are wrecked because we're playing a game that is deadly and has eternal consequences. Jesus goes on to say, everyone will be salted with fire. What does that mean? Everyone will be salted with fire. What is salt? What does it serve as? A preservative, right? Salt serves as a preservative. So everyone, every Christian, every non-Christian will be salted with fire. Preserved forever with fire in a manner that is consistent with their relationship to Christ. So we will be preserved with fire that is consistent with our relationship to Christ. So for the non-Christian, they don't have a relationship with Christ, correct? They are unbelievers. They will be preserved forever, salted with the eternal fires of hell as God's judgment for their sin. But for those of us who are in Christ, the Christian, we too will be salted with fire. Well, what does that look like? It's with preserving and refining fires of trials and suffering on the road to discipleship. Anyone who ever preaches a gospel that says that there is no suffering in the life of a Christian 
is preaching a false gospel. The road of discipleship is a road marked by suffering. And our suffering and our trials on this earth, they test the genuineness of our faith. Therefore, the warning here is, don't let your salt lose its saltiness. Don't let your salt lose its saltiness. Don't let the trials, don't let the suffering cause you to walk away from Christ. Don't. If you do, you prove your faith was not genuine to begin with. Trial gets tough. Trial gets severe. You walk away. God can never do this. I walk away from Christ. You prove that your faith was not genuine. Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling us that following him will not be easy. But it's worth it. It's worth it. There's nothing easy about denying ourselves. There's nothing easy about picking up our cross. There's nothing easy about following Jesus. It's a road marked with sacrifice and suffering, but it's a road that leads to glory. It leads to glory. It's a road that molds us and shapes us, sanctifies us with fire into the image of Christ. Just think about all the trials and suffering that you have in your life. All of them. Most importantly, think about the ones that you've had since you've come to faith in Christ. And I'm not talking about just the, the huge trials. I'm talking about those everyday trials. The relationship trials, the work trials, the parenting trials. All those trials that are just everyday trials that are being used to, to humble, teach, and used to shape us into the image of Christ. Think about them. They can be painful, can't they? Sometimes they can be quite humiliating. It can be hard, but they're purposeful. They're being used to, to mold us, shape us, refine us into the image of Christ. I just think about all the times that I have failed as a parent. Just failed. Those times where, where Bryant has gotten on my everlasting nerve. Yes, he's acted up, but then I have disciplined out of, out of sin, out of anger. And I'm like convicted again by the grace of God. Praise the Lord. I'm, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I'm convicted. And, but in those moments, I invite Bryant into my lap. And I'm just like, I, I've got to apologize. And I have Brian, and I, and I sit him in my lap, and sometimes the tears are still in his eyes. And, and I'm like, Brian, I am sorry. I'm sorry. Daddy sinned. Daddy was wrong. You were wrong to do what you did, but Daddy did not respond with love. Daddy responded with anger. And then sometimes Brian will respond back, and he'll say, Daddy, you need to sit in the front chair. <laughs> And other times he will take my face with his hands just like I sometimes take his and he will look me right in the eye and he will say, Daddy, it's okay, I forgive you. And God forgives you too. And in so doing, I'm humiliated, <laughs> humbled, I'm, I'm reminded even further of the love and the patience of Christ for me, for us. I'm, I'm refined, I'm shaped, I'm molded. 
and I hate it at one sense and I'm thankful for it in the other. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't want to go through that refining fire, but I'm thankful for what it's making me into, thankful for what it's making us into. It's hard, but we're being salted with the fiery trials of this earth. But take the easy road. Don't fight. Don't pluck out. Don't cut off. And there's another fire that awaits. It's hard to pluck things out of our life. It's hard to, to remove obstacles and things and temptations. But if we don't, what's the alternative? So one final question. So we cut off our hands and we pluck out our eyes. Can a blind man still lust? Of course he can. Can a man with no hands still steal? Maybe you have to get a little creative, but yes, he can. We can cut off our hands. We can cut off our feet. We can pluck out our eyes. We can throw our computers, our TVs, our credit cards into an incinerator. Beat them with a baseball bat, whatever. It's not going to be enough to keep our sinful hearts from sinning. We cannot do this in and of ourselves. Why? Because our hearts are defiled. Remember chapter 7? Turn back with me to chapter 7 real quick, verse 21. Chapter 7, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from where? From within. And they defile a person. We are corrupted to our core. And our only hope is Christ. So what do we do? What do we do here? We rest in the finished work of Christ. And we keep resting in the finished work of Christ. We repent of our sin and we believe in the gospel and we continue to repent of our sin and we continue to believe in the gospel that Jesus literally did live the life that we were supposed to live. This is something we have to preach to ourselves every single day. Failed as a parent, <laughs> preach it to ourselves. On the way to church this morning, <laughs> rah, 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 rah. all of us going, get out, you're getting out the front up here. Hey everybody, how are you? <laughs> Sinners. We need the gospel. We need Christ more than we realize. To realize that he lived a perfectly sinless life. And we failed. Preach it. He lived the life that you were supposed to live. And he died the death that you deserve to die. That I deserve to die. I deserve God's wrath. I deserve the eternal fires of hell. But Christ in his love and his mercy, with the great exchange, as we have talked about over the past few weeks, took our sin and had it attributed to, imputed upon him, himself. He bore our, the wrath of God for our sin. He died the death that we deserve to die. And in exchange, we receive the righteousness of Christ. 
we are now seen not as sinners in the hands of an angry God. We are now seen as sinners saved by the blood of Christ. Just as if I'd never sinned. (laughs) It's grace. It's mercy. We rest there. We rejoice there. We find our confidence there. And we don't ever stop. (laughs) Christian, you are never good enough to earn your salvation. Which means if you are truly in Christ, you can never be bad enough to lose your salvation. So quit beating yourself up and rest in Christ. Rest in Christ. At the same time, because we have received the righteousness of Christ, because we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are now not in our power, but in his. We are to fight sin with all that we have, put to death, cut off, pluck out, remove all obstacles, fix our eyes upon Jesus and treasure him above all else. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure to sell everything we have to behold. And we keep going. We keep pressing on. We see him as better than any image on a screen. More fulfilling than any earthly relationship. More satisfying than any, any earthly experience. And more gratifying than the, than the applause of men. So we remove every obstacle. And we fix our eyes upon Christ and we pursue holiness by the grace of God. And now think about a church. Think about Harvest Point. Collectively unified. Marked with a desire for this. We're going to be last. We're going to be servants of all. We're going to give all of our time, our resources, our efforts, blank check on the table for the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom in this community and around the world. (laughs) Think about that. Think about Harvest Point. Saying We don't care if we're a large church, a small church. We just want to be a healthy church that's making disciples, reproducing, sending out people with the gospel. We're going to be praying for, helping start other churches in this community and around the world. We want to celebrate the victories of our fellow Christians. We want to celebrate the victories of our fellow churches. We want to come alongside and help them in this journey together. Think about a church that's committed to to help one another pursue holiness. No matter the cost, to fight with one another. We know a brother or sister is struggling. We come and we lock arms again, one another. And we walk through it together. We encourage one another through sickness. We encourage one another through the battle of sin. We encourage one another down this road of discipleship that is marked by suffering. We walk the road together. And the world looks upon us and they see something radically different than the culture. And they say, I want to know more. So what I want us to do now is similar to what we did last week. is just enter into a time of prayer. So wherever you're at, if you want to you huddle up together, you can. If you want to sit where you're at individually, if you want to kneel where you're at or kneel another place in this room, you do that now. And we're just going to enter into a time of prayer together. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're just going to collectively go into a season of prayer. 
And what I want us to notice is that Jesus doesn't call us to do anything he hasn't first done himself. Nothing. He was the suffering servant. So take time now to confess your pride, your lack of faith, your lack of humility, and ask God to reveal to you how you can better serve his kingdom. How do you become less? How do we as a church become less to love our neighbors as ourselves? Let's take time to, to pray for churches in our area. Churches we may agree with theologically and churches we may not. Pray, pray for these churches to grow in their faithfulness to the gospel and to make mighty impacts for the kingdom. Pray for the, the Lord to, to raise up and to start new churches that will be healthy gospel witnesses in this region. Take time to ask the Lord through the Holy Spirit to convict you of areas of sin in your life. To open your eyes to actions that could potentially cause other believers, specifically young believers, to stumble. And ask him to reveal to you what needs to be cut off and torn out of your life as a means to that end. And lastly, let's pray for the person to your left or to your right or in your front or, or behind that they will not lose their saltiness. That they will persevere in the faith through trials and suffering. Ask the Lord to impress upon your heart who within this body you can begin spending time encouraging this week.
Father, we thank you for the example of your son. How he humbled himself in obedience to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Lord, help us as a church body to, to look to be last of all and servants of all. Convict us of our pride. Convict us of our dependency upon earthly things. And to follow the example of your son. To reach out to the lowly, the marginalized, the least of these. Lord, we ask for you to work in, in mighty ways through, through the churches within this community. Help every church either remain in or find a firm commitment to preaching the truths of the gospel. Help us to celebrate the victories of our fellow Christians, fellow local churches. Forgive us of any sense of prideful competition or envy. Continue to build your team and add more healthy churches. Expand your kingdom through, through this region. At the same time, help us to, to never waver from the truths of the gospel. May, may we never cause a fellow Christian to sin by our sin or by watering down the truths of the gospel. Help, help us to remain fully dependent on the finished work of Christ. And as such, be a church in constant pursuit of holiness. Help us to rid ourselves of sin so we may not be a stumbling block, but rather a bright gospel light. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take time now to continue worship, continue praise through the singing together of the gospel.